Hello, this is Meet the Writers. I'm Georgina Godwin. My guest today is an author, academic and one of the UK's most celebrated journalists. He spent over two decades at The Guardian, at Times, the paper's US correspondent, a columnist and its editor-at-large. He's covered major world events, including the elections of Nelson Mandela and later Barack Obama, and offered commentary on issues from the Arab Spring and anti-Semitism to religion in Northern Ireland. He's the winner of a host of awards and honours and was named on a 2020 list of 100 Great Black Britons. He's now a professor of sociology at the University of Manchester and continues to write about topics including social movements, youth violence and race. His sixth book is Dispatches from the Diaspora, from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter, a series of snapshots from a remarkable and distinguished career of international reporting. Gary Young, welcome to Meet the Writers. Thanks for having me. It's so wonderful to have you in the studio because I've been reading you for years and just seeing you here to talk about the things that have kept my interest and stimulated so much discussion in this country is really quite an honour. Well, thanks for having me, Georgina. You grew up in Stevenage. That's right. But your parents were from Barbados. That's right, Tell me a little bit about that. Stevenage is a kind of famously white town. It's a very white town. And um, I think moving to Stevenage was down to my mum. Stevenage was built in 1948, the kind of social democratic ideal of the Attlee government, same year as the NHS. So my mum comes to England and um, she knew my dad from Barbados, but then they hook up, as they would say, here in, in London. And she looks around London and she thinks, yeah, they're going to start they're going to start kind of um, under-investing. This is more or less how she put it. Like, there are a lot of black people there, and I didn't think that they were going to treat it well. And so she looks for a place to go. And Stevenage, this is where the social democrats, council housing with gardens front and back, 100% council housing when it was built, gardens front and back, really nice houses, dream of the kind of post-war era. And um, she came as a nurse, uh, paradoxically invited in order to fund Enoch Powell's restructuring of the health service in 62. And uh, her and my dad moved to Stevenage. And the reason they chose Stevenage specifically, because they were looking at other towns around there, was because my mum had two small children. I wasn't born yet. And the next-door neighbour, Mrs Stilling, saw her, them come and look at the house. And elsewhere, there'd been very twitchy curtains, all black family coming, in a place where black families aren't used to being. And Mrs Stilling, who was a lifelong friend, older lady, said, um, can I warm the milk for your baby? And, um, you know, it was it was this nice human welcome. But growing up there, you know, any sense of myself that I needed to develop as a kind of black person or as a child of... Uh, I guess, almost grandchild of empire, really wasn't that available. There wasn't a black community there. There was a very small black community, all centred around the cricket club. And was there racism towards you? A lot, yes. There was a lot. There was also a lot of decency, if we think of Mrs Stilling. But um, it was the 70s. You know, racism was kind of routine and reflexive. There was a family at the top of the road that would just shout abuse at us as we walked down the road. And when my mum called the police, 
the policeman said, well, you're an ethnic minority and this is the kind of thing you're going to have to get used to. I remember that very well because it was the first time I heard the word ethnic minority. So it was routine and there would be teachers, there would be, you know, a range of places where now there would be sanctioned, but then it was kind of just what happened. But as well as that, there was also a kind of confusion, a racial confusion. So, uh, uh, oh, it's cold, isn't it? But it's not like this where you came from. And he said, well, you know, I came from down the road. Oh, <laughs> I've got a friend, Jamaican. Oh, lovely, lovely, lovely. You know, and so there was this sense of like, why are you here? Where did you come from? What is this? Which spoke to a kind of ignorance about where Britain had been and that we, in the words of Sivan and then, well, we're here because you were there. But if you don't know that you were there, then how would you know why we're here? Absolutely, absolutely. I mean, you you picked that theme up in one of your essays, I think, White History Month. Mm. Well, yes, this kind of... The more power you have, the less you have to know. You know, nobody ever asked me, when did you come out as a straight man? Or (laughs) how did you balance being a foreign correspondent and having small children? Nobody asked men that. And so if white people aren't asked, well, you know, what are you doing in that country? Or... You know, what? how did that? it happen that this small island, that the sun never set on the empire, who did that? You know, and so there is this kind of selective amnesia mm. where people will say, we won the war, even if they didn't fight, even if they weren't born. Or we won the World Cup, even if they didn't play, even if they weren't born. But when you say, well, who colonised that country? They say, well, it wasn't me. I wasn't born. I wasn't there. I didn't do it. And so, you know, power has many, many parents, but the brutality it takes to acquire it is often an orphan. Do you think that those early experiences lit a kind of revolutionary fire in you? I mean, I know that you joined a, a Trotskyist group for I a while. I did. For, well, for one year, yes, between the ages of 15 and 16. You know, what? what I think it did was shaped my understanding, which has also informed my writing, that the dominant narrative was probably a lie. Not that everybody was lying all the time, but that the main story that you were being given, there was probably a lie in it. And I felt that quite keenly, not least because they were lying about me all the time. You know, the the dominant narrative about who I was and why I was there and why my mother was there didn't fit with who I was. So I thought, well, if they're lying about me, why wouldn't they be lying about anybody else? And it wasn't like a conscious sense of uh, uh, some conspiracy. It was, you know, far more contextual than that. So, and there's a range of things that you could do with that, but it did make me quite a kind of oppositional kind of character Mm. that would be attracted to radical more radical ideas. I'm still attracted to radical ideas, but... And always challenging the <laughs> fact that the dominant narrative could be a lie. Well, yeah, that kind of... And that that needn't actually... One may challenge that in ways that needn't particularly please radicals. You know, to say, I think there's more to Donald Trump than just racism or xenophobia. I think there's more to his appeal than that. Or to say, that I think there's more to Brexit than just racism and xenophobia. I think... We have to understand why that is. Or there's more to Jeremy Corbyn than kind of anti-Semitism and Trotskyists. In each case, and they are three very different cases from the political spectrum, is to, is to really say, particularly as a journalist, our job is to be curious and to try and understand. We don't have to like what we see. 
We don't have to like necessarily the conclusions we come to. And once we are, once our curiosity has to some extent been sated, then by all means, <laughs> criticise, critique, slay. But our job isn't to deride and lampoon. I mean, it can be if you're a satirist, I guess. But broadly speaking, you have to understand even what you're satirising before you can mm. make the satire work. So, um, yeah, it's kind of, it, it has long shaped my my perspective. And it's not a desire to look clever and to feel kind of, uh, to be contrarian. But just to say, well, maybe. But why don't we just turn this around a little bit and see what it looks like from that angle. Mm. That curiosity that you talk about drove you to Sudan. You went to teach there when you were just 17. Yeah, quite eccentric. I did. I mean, Sudan wasn't my... It was an organisation called Project Trust, which which I love, that sent young people to the uh, the developing world. And they chose Sudan for me from three countries that they thought would be appropriate. I was a teacher. I was a teacher of Eritrean refugees in Kassala. And and that was a very, that was a very formative experience for me. And the primary way in which it was formative, obviously, I grew up an awful lot, and I learned a lot about Sudan and particularly about refugees and who they are and what their needs are. But I learned even more about Britain. Weirdly, I was with um, fifteen other British kids, twelve of whom had been to private school. This was where I found out that I'd been to a comprehensive. Because before then, I just thought it was school. And they said, did you go to comprehensive? I was like, I don't know, it was school. Nobody talked about comprehensives where I, you know, steepness really. And I, I saw the kind of confident, class confidence up close and um, the degree to which a section of the country think about their prospects and the possibilities for them. And, you know, these are these were very nice people, many of whom I'm still in touch with, one of whom, who went to Eton, was the best man at my wedding and is still my best friend. These, you know, but I'd never met people like that before. Mm-hmm. You then went on to, to university. Mm. You studied French and Russian, yeah. and you, in fact, went to the Soviet Union whilst mm. it was still the Soviet Union. And I just wonder if that um, has made you, as Russia does challenged the narrative about sort of Western hegemony? Yeah, well, it did. Although I would say that whole year challenged an awful lot of things. And, um, you know, it would, have be, it would be a terrible waste of money and of time to go to Sudan and go to Russia and go to France and come back unchanged, you know. But that year was a particularly interesting year for me and it also shaped my interest in becoming a writer France, being in Paris in 1990-91, was the most intensely racist experience I've ever had. I was stopped by the police regularly because I, I lived in... I was staying in the Fifth Arrondissement by the Pantheon, very bougie neighbourhood. I was beaten up by the police in the metro. Uh, they were looking for drugs. I didn't have any. They could have asked, but instead they roughed me up. It was intense. The way I found a flat, because... People would say, "Visit de quelle origine, monsieur? You know, where, where are you from? And if I said England, I'd turn up and then they'd see I was black. And then, and if I said, Antilles um, Britannique, which is, means kind of uh, Caribbean bread, oh, you know, sorry, but the flat is, you know, it's gone. And I put a little note in the English church 
in Madeline saying, black British students seeking accommodation. And <laughs> interestingly, once again, an old Etonian saw it, said God spoke to him, found me a place, and he found me a place with a journalist called Annie Dombonthor, who was this wonderful woman who was the Eastern European correspondent in 1990 of France Inter, and she needed someone to teach her English because she'd got the job saying that she spoke English, but she didn't really. And uh, I would say, you know, what, what, you know, what did you do today? Well, today I interviewed Lech Wałęsa about the situation in Poland. Uh, tomorrow I will speak with Mikhail Gorbachev. About, and I was like, oh, give me some of this. This is awesome. That was France. Then I went to what was still the Soviet Union. And um, my understanding... I, I was never a Stalinist, so I was never wedded to the Soviet Union. But I still had hopes about it and its ability to reform itself. And this is at the tail end of the Gorbachev era. And it just wasn't working. It just wasn't working. And I, I, I recall one conversation in particular that really summed it up where someone was talking about America and um, wanting to go to America and how America would be so much better. And they had some kind of illness and I said, but you know, in America, like, they have no public health care. You couldn't just go to the hospital. And she said, have you been to our hospitals? Nobody wants to go there. And I thought, yeah, okay, lesson learned. Yeah, like, um, yeah, you can have all this stuff, but if it's no good, then it's no good. And if people have no confidence in it, they have no confidence in it. But if you could bear with me just for one second, because there was also something very interesting about being in the Soviet Union for me which kind of speaks to some of the themes in the book, which is that it was in a moment where America, as described from that previous story, was coveted. Soviet Union was falling apart. Look at them and all the stuff they got. And they'd, they were just, there'd just been a rout in the first Gulf War. American supremacy was on a high. And people looked at me, and because of my jeans, my sneakers, I had plaits at the time, they thought I was American. The Africans were catching hell in the Soviet Union at the time, because they were seen as a representative of the failed. They were, they were often catching out, but they were seen as a representative of the failed regime. People looked at me and saw money. It's the only time in my life when anybody ever looked at me and thought I was rich. In France, I couldn't get a cab for love nor money. In the Soviet Union, cars would turn into cabs at the sight of me. People would say, where are you going? Can I take you? It will be $5. I had to vouch for white people going into hotels. It was mad. Yeah. And, and and I was always the same person in France and in Soviet Union. I was the same person, but the context changed. Let's get on to your journalism career, because I do want to spend some time on the book, mm. which is extraordinary. But The Guardian really gave you a lot of opportunities. They did, yes, yes. And um, starting with the bursary when I left university, which was set up following the disturbances in 87, they set up bursaries for young uh, not just for young people of colour, but um, targeted towards us. I think there were th half of them went to people of colour at, at the time. And um, that's how I got my training in journalism and then, and then would stumble across the greatest story of the period with Nelson Mandela. And, of course, that's <clears throat> how you start this book. Mm. And you write about how you really felt not at all confident about writing this piece, how it took you a very, very long time. And then we read the piece, and I suppose what I love about it is that so much of what's written about 
Nelson Mandela is pure hagiography. Mm. And the fact that you say that actually some of the speeches were quite dull. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, it's funny, isn't it? Because it certainly didn't come from a state of supreme confidence that I was confident about the judgment, but I didn't write it knowing that I was kind of poking anything in the eye. I was just trying to write about what I, I saw. And I, I, I felt like I was trying to describe what it was to be in a Mandela rally. And the build-up is huge. The build-up, the kind of people see the cavalcade and the dust kicking up from miles around and the ululation start and the waving and the cheering and lots of people have never seen him. If you don't have a telly, you've never seen him. And he was in prison. It's almost like a myth or a metaphor has arrived. And you kind of can't describe all of that and then not say what the rally's like. And the rally was just a bit boring, you know, once he started (laughs) speaking. And kind of, if anything... I thought that made him more human. You know, I like many, if not most, I kind of, there was a reverence for the man. But he was a man. And there is a desire with these things for them not to be men or women, sadly or too rarely, but to be something beyond and above. Mm. I found the same with Obama, to be honest. Well, you write about him, in fact, in the same part of the book. Mm. The initial part's called Change is Going to Come, and, and so it is. It's Mandela, the, the Black Knight. Uh, you talk about Barbados in, in 1999. You also talk about the murder of Stephen Lawrence, all of these huge, big events in, in our world history. But then you talk about Obama. Tell us, tell us uh, about that. Well, my son was born on the weekend that Obama declared... And people would say, this is going to be great for your son. And I would say, tell me why. What do you mean, tell me why? Is he going to lessen the odds of him being shot or jailed? Is he going to heighten the odds of him getting good employment or going to... That's what I want from a president. And what, what Obama taught me was to unpick the distinction between symbols and substance in the reporting of him that he was symbolically incredibly important. And it would not do to undermine the symbolism of that, to say, oh, it doesn't matter. So what? If he's not going to change this. To have a, a black man of immigrant heritage, part immigrant heritage, part Muslim heritage, rise to that level, to have by popular acclaim, is huge. And that should not be denied. But it also should be untethered from the fact that that's who he is and not what he does. And now we have to look at what he does. And my feeling was, in the symbolism, I will be (laughs) unmatched in terms of talking about the symbolic importance of this. But I will not mistake it for substance. And I will not say, therefore, everything will be good. Therefore, you know, and the truth is that Obama was mostly ran on the same agenda as Hillary and led from the centre and deported more people than George Bush had and, you know, multiplied the drone attacks and and he also did good things. And if there was, and this is related to the symbols and the substance idea, is trying to just keep more than one idea in your head at the same time, which is where I kind of often will fall out with the left in like, yes, that can be true, and this can also be true. You can have more than one thing be true at the same time. 
And that kind of made it tricky because the further away you got from America, and in this sense, Obama was a lot like Gorbachev. You know, the closer you got to Gorbachev, the more critical people were. The you know, in the Soviet Union, when I was there, people you know, like his name was dirt. Elsewhere in Western Europe and America, he was God. And I found that with reporting on Obama, that in The Guardian in Britain and elsewhere, people wanted a messiah. And the closer you got in America, the people were like, as time went on, people were like, oh, you know, this isn't really working out. I mean, I think this is all so interesting. In part three of the book, you, you really kind of interrogate that because it is about how issues aren't always black and white. Sometimes it's important to shift our gaze, adopt a different lens, you say, or flip the script in order to understand things differently. And there's one great essay in there. I mean, there are so many, but the one I want to pick out is um, this 150th anniversary of Uncle Tom's Cabin. Oh, yeah. And you say, don't blame Uncle Tom. <laughs> Unpick that for us. Well... This was a desire to do two things. First of all, to talk about the book Uncle Tom's Cabin and what a phenomenon it had been. Uh, and this is the book by, uh, Har- uh, by Harriet, Harriet Beecher, Beecher Stowe. Yeah. Um, what a phenomenon it had been at the time. A book that most people at this stage haven't read. And, uh, you know, and it comes out during the Civil War. It's Lenin's favourite book and so on. I think Palmerston loved it. I can't, I can't quite remember all the details. But it was, a, it was an amazing publishing sensation at the time. And by a woman, which was quite rare. I think Lincoln said, who is this woman in petticoats who's causing me such trouble? But on the other hand, there was so there's the Uncle Tom of literature or the book. And in the book, Uncle Tom, he's not, a revolutionary. He's not oppositional, but he has a serious moral compass. He dies because he refuses to tell the master where the slaves have run to. He, in life, he helps the slaves that are kind of struggling. But what he won't do is run. When they say, come on, Tom, let's go. He's like, no, I'll be, you know, I'll be here. I'll be, I'll be standing here. He's a kind of, um, and he says to his master, I would rather be free and have nothing than be a slave. But then you have the Uncle Tom of caricature and insult. And that is a kind of um, uh, where, and I think most cultures have this. In Ireland, they call them the West Brits, with Jews as the kind of, um, they talk about... Um, uh, what was it? One person said that anti-Zionist Jews were Jews of people of Jewish extraction because they had all the Jewishness extracted <laughs> from them. Self-hating Jews—that's the term. And for black people, you can have a de-blacking, and the Uncle Tom was a way of essentializing your identity. Mm. Now, that's not exclusive to black people, but that you know, I, my feeling is, if you want to criticize Kwasi Kwarteng, criticize him for what he does. Not who he is. There's no reason. Black people have as right as much right to be wrong-headed about politics and economics, in my view, than anybody else. And Kwasi Kwarteng doesn't owe me as a black person anything by being a Tory and doing what he does, or James Cleverly, or any of those people. Criticize them for what they do, but not for who they are. And don't claim that like, how could they possibly be this? And it doesn't make sense. You know, the Rwandan genocide was caused by, was black people. It's possible. Of course it's possible. Mm. You end the book by saying, 
things look bleak, the propensity to despair is strong, but should not be indulged. Sing yourself up. Imagine a world in which you might thrive, for which there is no evidence, and then fight for it. And for me, that sums up the entire book. But but just to unpick that f- for us, because it does seem to be your philosophy. Yeah, and I, I think that without getting too Oprah-ish about it, I feel it kind of, I feel like an embodiment of that sentiment that my mother, my dad left when I was one. My mum raised three kids in the 70s on her own before Lady Di made single parenthood seem like something kind of that people might do. And she had to imagine a life for me that she couldn't see and prepare me for a life that wasn't evident. And that I kind of, I certainly didn't breeze through life, but I went through life thinking, well, I would like to do this. Well, you know, we've never seen, you you know, someone like you do that before. Well, okay, well, give me that job and then you'll see it. You know, and that I, so I had to imagine myself in spaces, not just in terms of race, but class as well, where no one had been before, no one who like me had been before. And that kind of sort of shapes my politics. That there, Of course, we have to deal with the now and the, what, what we can see. Of course we do. But just imagine that Martin Luther King had risen to the steps of Lincoln Memorial and said, I have a 10-point plan (laughs) and not I have a dream. It's important to dream. And I feel like I am the product of a dream of my mother's for what might be possible. Well, I thank you for it. I thank you for your writing through the decades, but particularly for this book, Dispatches from the Diaspora. It's uh, from Nelson Mandela to Black Lives Matter. It absolutely is a collection of stunning, insightful, necessary writing. So thank you, Gary Young. Thanks so much, Georgina. Dispatches from the Diaspora by Gary Young is published by Faber and it's out now. You've been listening to Meet the Writers, Thanks to my producer, Nora Hull. You can download this show and previous episodes from our website or wherever you get your podcasts. I'm Georgina Godwin. Thank you for listening.